Hello, it's been a year when markets made history, investors were tested and economies transformed, some permanently. So what lessons have we learned and what has a year of volatility, lockdowns and extreme monetary and fiscal stimulus told us about the way markets work and how they might work differently in future? I'm Richard Edgar and this is Fidelity International's Rich Pickings, the Asset Allocation Podcast. Joining me for this final episode of 2020 are Fidelity's Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey, and Multi-Asset Portfolio Manager, Charlotte Harrington. Welcome to you both. Now, it's been a year of surprises, and we're going to look at a few of those in more detail in a minute. But before we do, just to set the scene for us, can you tell me what surprised you most this year? Charlotte. So, Richard, as you said, a year of surprises, so quite quite hard to pick any any one or two things, but... Perhaps uh, the the policy response stands out most. So both from the monetary and the fiscal authorities, it took four years to get real rates negative in the global financial crisis uh, and four weeks to do that this time. So really, it has been pretty, pretty fast and pretty large in magnitude. Speed and scale. Absolutely. Um, Andrew, what about you? What, um, what surprised you most? So it's linked to what Charlotte said, but it would be the speed with which animal spirits came back. We moved almost from uh, you know degree of despair um, and uh, you know great uncertainty to that level of intervention, creating uh, really a sort of massive uh, pendulum swing to embracing animal spirits and the way in which that has just built on itself as the year has progressed. If this were a sports podcast, we'd be talking about emotional roller coasters, but we, we're not. So let's 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 move on to the reflections of, uh, of markets, actually, because you've been uh, keeping us updated with regular podcast appearances um, this year as the pandemic has unfolded. I mean, at one stage we were talking weekly on these um, on these podcasts. Let's start with when it all began, or at least when markets really began to respond to the pandemic. There have been some losses on share markets early in February, but it was something completely unrelated to the pandemic, oil, that really got markets spooked. Remind us what happened then. So it was uh, amazing conditions where we saw Russia and Saudi Arabia having a a major spat over the uh, level of supply that would be continued. And so leading concerns that OPEC would be producing much more oil, just as we saw uh, concerns for the real economy from the COVID-related events as economies were shutting down. This led to the amazing technical consideration of where all the storage was being filled. And you ended up in this position, we actually had negative oil prices as uh, uh, traded on the West Texas uh, intermediate. Um, but you know, the sort of follow through uh, from, from that was that this ongoing concern of what it would also mean that uh, uh, for the US and for the shale um, industry. And so it was a combination of events really leading to uh, major concerns for the, uh, the economy and for commodity prices at that stage. So absolutely crazy to have a negative oil price. The producer was theoretically paying um, a, a buyer to uh, to take it off their hands. Was there a day or a, a number or a chart that really made your stomach turn at one stage? Well, I don't think uh, you know seeing negative oil prices was uh, making me feel very comfortable at that stage. But um, I think it was what we were seeing happening again in um, spreads uh, for um, credits that. Uh, uh, you know, always the concern when you see funding spreads and you know some longer data spreads for uh, you know investment grade, but also especially for high yield markets, just pushing out into four figure numbers, funding spreads moving into three figures. That uh, you know these are really sort of very concerning because they're saying the system is starting to really uh, you know break down, um, and so. 
uh, you know, I think that those were ones where we're really concerned because that really does then feed through to systemic problems across the board. Uh, so often it's the bond markets where we can sort of see the uh, the detail of the fear that uh, that builds up. Charlotte, what about you? Was there a um, uh, that, that number or a chart uh, or something that, that that caught your eye at the time? I think at the time, actually, the sort of um, the the disagreement within OPEC brought home, if you like, how big this demand shock was really going to be. And I think essentially. OPEC decided that their supply cuts just were not going to move the dial in a world in which oil demand had basically collapsed um, or was going to collapse. That was the first thing. I think the second thing is that OPEC will have wanted to do some damage to the US shale industry, uh, which is looking a bit a bit weaker at this stage, given the increasing pressure from, from investors on, on those companies. Um, and then in terms of the kind of feedback loop, if you like, from oil prices into risk sentiment more broadly. So it it really took equity risk with it um, and particularly hurt the emerging markets. So it was all sort of part and parcel of the the bigger COVID response, but added an extra kicker to it, if you like. Okay, well, we're going to listen now to a recording from back in March. Andrew, uh, we're going to hear what you had to say then about the situation with OPEC and how it might possibly play out as the virus spread across the world. The important thing is that obviously this is a concentrated profile around energy at the moment. It's whether when we add in the coronavirus and other impacts around the global economy, do we actually see a more normal default cycle develop? And the challenge there is that we have a number of companies which have been running on very tight um, margins in terms of you know, cash flow management. The need for that refinancing is extraordinary through the course of the next two or three years. And much of that is, is in private markets as well. So that was in March, before we had a, a real sense of the economic seizure and the consequent stimulus that would be unleashed on the world. We never saw that more normal default cycle that you refer to, precisely because the companies have been kept afloat by the authorities. Has that saved the day, Andrew, or just postponed the day of reckoning? Uh, so I think um, for the moment really has you know, saved the day and it's bought a lot of time. Um, and you know, this is, I think, why as we've gone through the year, the, the build-up of uh, you know, the excitement around reflation has uh, grown because balance sheets have been uh, repaired, but there has been a significant amount of uh, uh, just you know, buying, what not as you know, few months, but actually looking through the course of the next 18 months, two years and many uh, companies. The challenge, though, and uh, I suppose as we look forward, is that as we really address the, the solvency crisis in full, because it really means that it comes back to the maintenance of very big fiscal deficits, very significant monetary and central bank balance sheet support being maintained. Now the markets really expect that to continue. And so I think the challenge is actually, as we look into 22, 23, funnily enough, that um, rather than as we uh, head into 21. Charlotte, volatility was all over the place in the first three months. What indicators helped you understand what was going on? Yes, I think uh, during that volatility, the kind of technical indicators become much more important to, to your sort of investment strategy. Um, they're obviously changing at a far more rapid pace than, than the fundamentals were. In terms of things to look at, of course, positioning and also just some of the, the, just the stress in markets. So liquidity really had fallen an awful lot. Uh, and there was also a real sort of scramble for dollars. So if you looked at the 
cross-currency basis against the dollar for, for many currencies, those really indicated that dollar funding stress. And actually, it was the Fed coming with, with swap lines that over a very short period of time got uh, bigger and more timely and, and expanded to a, a, a larger number of other central banks that started to ease that. So, so just watching those, those sort of stress indicators, if you like, was very important in terms of timing um, any recovery. It's really so important, isn't it, the swap lines you're talking about, that this became an international effort, that you began to see uh, the central banks working working together um, in a way that they hadn't initially. So, you know, this is something they did in the global financial crisis. So this this crisis has, has been a lot of kind of lessons learnt. And so actually it was just being able to, to get those up and running uh, in, in a much quicker, quicker, larger way. Uh, so it wasn't totally new to them, but but it was something they were able to do quickly. What we've seen, as Charlotte said earlier on, is that it's the acceleration of that was so extraordinary. And I think, you know, I had a very sort of visible moment with our global operating committee uh, colleagues that uh, on the 23rd of March, uh, uh, when we saw the, the Fed step in and announce that um, from a 250 billion from the uh, the Treasury, that um, it was going to basically leverage up to 2.3 trillion and buy uh, corporate debt and especially the sort of investment grade fallen angels area. And I think that was a very important point because that was when we really saw this massive acceleration of intervention. And really that was where I think you started to see both market seal, but also the change in the dynamics of what was thought about liquidity and how that would flow back through the system. So this was the cavalry to the rescue moment. What was the, the mood amongst you as you as this news spread? Uh, so I think that at that stage, you know, we, we'd been, um, you know, trying to manage what were many challenges. Um, obviously, there's concern about uh, liquidity in markets, liquidity across funds, um, you know, making sure that our clients understood what we were doing and, uh, you know, what was happening. So uh, trying to be actively engaging and just making sure that the operational nature of the, the firm was uh, robust. And I think, um, you know, we were in a good place, but, you know, that was a uh, sort of signal that something uh, quite dramatic was taking place that was um, you know positive and you know markets uh, to remember had already sort of shown signs of their sort of spike bottom when you look back in hindsight but that was I think the part where we saw really quite a dramatic change and as to Charlotte's point around the the cross currency um, swap lines is that this was all about them bringing down funding costs was getting access to capital again and liquidity um, that we saw you know built very very rapidly as the debt markets opened and as that liquidity flowed through the system so was that the moment when you could see some signs for relief uh, so you know we used the, the well i used the term helium a lot didn't i um in all honesty that uh, yeah. well, i saw that as the point where the healing process really could sort of get into another um, uh, level and so that we could see markets starting to um, uh, to recover. Um, as I said, I, I misinterpreted that healing could turn into um, you know, rapid animal spirits uh, embracing. Well, we'll cover that in a moment. But um, Charlotte, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I think just just to that point, and, and, and the central bank certainly described their policy as trying to get markets functioning more normally. And of course, some of that spills over into the, to the real economy. But in terms of the, the liquidity point, I think we had, you know, we had an extra uh, liquidity issue, if you like, which was the physical act of traders moving home, uh, which, which inevitably makes, makes liquidity that much harder. Uh, and just uh, a final point on this is, is around the banks. 
Uh, and, and you know, the banks were really part of the solution to the, the problem of the COVID crisis. Uh, and, and that's in stark contrast to, to obviously the global financial crisis where they were the part of the problem. This time they were able to pass the aid on in a way that they, they weren't in, the, in quite the same way last time. Exactly. They were, they were helping to facilitate this policy from the central bank. Okay, so that's contributed to the healing that um, Andrew was talking about. Um, Andrew, I asked you in March for a forecast of what we faced back then and how investors should be preparing. In fact, I think this was almost the last time we saw each other in person this year. Here's what you had to say then. Even though we've said for some time that you know, late cycle is going to be a dangerous place, I think it's been highlighted that um, you really do want to be focusing on that quality. Um, the other point, I think, is that until we start to see more evidence of what's playing out in the real economy and the direction of fiscal policy to really address the issues that are um, uh, you know, playing out from that, then I think that you know, markets can recover on the expectation of fiscal policy, but they'll be challenged through the next couple of quarters by um, how much that impacts and how much that um, you know, we start to see real role in uh, data come through uh, the global economy. Now that data that you mentioned in March, it did come through as terribly as expected. The loss of economic output was vast, um, not seen since wartime. But then in the second quarter, there was a surprising recovery in asset prices as the scale of the stimulus was absorbed by markets. Now, you've already referred to this, that that really wasn't as expected, was it, Andrew? No, I mean, it was, uh, you know, the speed and the size was quite extraordinary. Um, and uh, you know, we've had, uh, I think, um, you know, Google search uh, had its uh, you know, top word as unprecedented, and it certainly <laughs> fitted into that, uh, that camp. Um, uh, you know, what it also produced that we were talking lots about letters, you know, was it going to be U, V, L, W, we've even used K since. Um, but I think the, the important part is that, you know, as we look back is actually was the um, nature in which it was more like a V. Um, and part of that, I think, is that we have to look east as well, um, that, you know, the extraordinary performance and recovery that we saw in China, um, spreading through uh, Asia, giving stability into the parts of the global economy, which was very supportive. And then that element in the US, I think, um, as well as Europe, is really interesting, is putting money into individuals' hands um, and the way that that gave very much a, a sort of initial soothing impact. But actually, that flowed towards markets as well. So we had this combination of factors playing out. The real economy showing the sort of um, recovery was coming back quicker uh, uh, than expected, but also that markets were seeing this sort of additional liquidity flow that was um, coming in and uh, giving it uh, extra support. And direct injection of cash into, into households that they could spend in whichever way, which is, as you say, proper helicopter money in a sense. Um, would you have done anything differently as you look back now? It's, isn't it nice to have hindsight? But um, as you reflect on what was going on at the time and the, the messaging perhaps from central banks and then what the, uh, they were actually doing and the, and the governments were doing as well, um, would you have changed your reaction, do you think? Well, I think that uh, most probably, uh, you know, uh, although we were uh, constructive in terms of we saw that markets uh, could go through a healing press, it could recover. I don't think that um, uh, thought that it would flow through to uh, you know the speed to the levels um, and new highs that we saw in uh, you know across especially the U.S. Um, and also so that U.S. outperformance. Um, so I think you know in, in hindsight that um, uh, you know, maybe not being quite so cautious towards some of the risk asset areas, because most of how we embraced that was through credit. You know, we had the central banks behind you, they had these very high spreads. So I think risk adjusted returns we saw being very high in that space. And, and I think that was a positive decision. 
but I think that you know, in, in hindsight, um, some of that, uh, you know, taking on more equity risk, taking on some of the elements of of what were then, uh, you know, the sort of need for um, growth and uh, and that price being paid for for growth. I think we always thought was going to be limited, but obviously it went on to um, you know much greater levels. As we come to where we are now, interestingly enough, I think that we are entering and have entered a, a period where it's going to be what's a reasonable price for growth versus that um, you know, uh, sort of growth at any price. And Charlotte, um, going back to the, the, the time of the, of, the, of the crisis and all of these strange communications um, of support, you're managing money. So how did you react? How did you um, start to, to allocate or change those allocations as, um, as you took in all this information? So I think, at least in the first instance, um, it was about allocating to, to risk uh, and not, in a sense, not being overly choosy about that because everything had sold off pretty indiscriminately. Um, and, and actually, you know, to Andrew's point about credit, in the same way that central banks were following the, the global financial crisis playbook, investors were doing the same. So investors were also following that playbook by se- sequencing into risk assets, as it were, through credit first. And actually buying riskier assets, credit or, or equities was, was the right thing to do. As we get sort of into the next phase of this recovery, I think it is about selectivity uh, and being selective as to what to what risk you do buy. But back then, you were catching whatever would bounce. Yeah, so I mean, it's like trying to catch a falling knife. Uh, so. Well, I was deliberately not. I was <laughs> deliberately not choosing the falling knife thing because this okay. was everything was a, you know a nice cuddly bouncy ball that that rises. Well, <laughs> that's not what it felt like. Um, so. what, why not? Why not? Well, I think look, it goes back to the liquidity point actually, which is that it, it cuts both ways. You get gappy price action on the way down, but when people start buying, you get gappy price action on the way up. Uh, so, so, so it's not that, that liquidity only matters in in the downdraft. Uh, and I and I would just say, in terms of the kind of the bounce back that we saw and the the, the V shaped recovery, uh, I think it's worth bearing in mind the amount of science, if you like, that that we were starting to understand about this virus. And and at the beginning, it was total unknown, re- real kind of fear about what this could or couldn't be. And as time has progressed, it's become a sort of, if you like, a more normal virus. And uh, and now here we are with uh, several vaccines, more on the horizon and, and people being jabbed in the arm, arm in December. It's a, it's a million miles away from where we were back in March. Was there a moment that gave you confidence that the policymakers would be able to do enough? Um, I suppose what I'm looking for is, was there an equivalent um, to Mario Draghi's um, whatever it takes, the, the former president of the ECB, the whatever it takes um, uh, phrase in his speech in 2012? I think for me, the the dollar funding, um, those cross-currency bases were were very informative in terms of um, seeing signposts for an alleviation of that that stress. But I also think that from just a purely fundamental standpoint, the the policy response um, was was feeding into the real economy. So if we look at things like house prices and um, mortgage applications and all these sorts of things, actually, um, the, the the there was traction with the the real economy, uh, and I think that that's also been been very important in supporting the the recovery. Okay, well, we're going to have a look at a little bit more at the recovery there. And Andrew, you've already touched on this because markets were still falling in the West in mid March when the Fidelity Analyst Survey took me by surprise for sure uh, when it showed that our investment team thought that China was going to take a big hit but would be very clearly the first to recover. And that that pattern hasn't stopped all year, has it, Andrew? 
It hasn't, and it has been impressive to to observe seeing how uh, you know, China has been able to focus back onto their longer term policy initiatives, building resilience uh, you know, into the domestic economy, um, and we have seen you know marked uh, uh, recovery to uh, to date. So uh, I think that was very encouraging. I think again that's spread some confidence around the world, and and certainly you've seen it in terms of. Um, there's an interest in also bifurcation between services and goods. You know, you've seen significant recovery uh, in the goods sector. You've seen um, uh, you know, trade activity pick up and actually there's challenges there that will, will play out in some form in terms of uh, you know, prices and blockages. But you know, services have challenged more because in the Western world we have had lockdowns and the way in which it's played out has been uh, you know, somewhat more challenging for us. But I think that it does give... Uh, again, you know, a very positive um, perspective when you start thinking beyond here and looking at, you know, what are the dynamics, um, you know, as we look into the next few years rather than just the next few months as well. And, and it sort of highlighted that how from a, uh, you know, managing at a society level, managing at a policy level, that they've been able to generate, um, uh, you know, a remarkable uh, recovery to, to date. And I think that one thing looking forward um, is important though, it means that their policy settings are likely to look very different to the West as well, because they maybe look much more cyclical than obviously some of these where we're, we're sort of captured into providing support for longer than maybe uh, we're being first envisaged. Charlotte? Yes, yeah, so I think just adding to the point around China, and we've obviously talked a lot about the Fed, but um, China were also easing uh, aggressively, so that, that credit impulse is is higher than any of the past uh, three peaks we've seen. Uh, and they also did a very good job at managing managing the virus as well. And so when we look at the recovery uh, and the manufacturing sensitivity, or if you like, the manufacturing strength, sorry, of, of that recovery, then I think China has been really central to that. And, and it continues today. And the, probably the key aspect of that is the way they're able to manage um, uh, any further outbreaks um, very, very quickly in stark contrast to uh, to Western economies. Now, Andrew, it was around this time back in April that you started talking about taking advantage of some of the dislocations that markets had experienced. Let's have another listen to a clip. It's less about uh, going out there and um, aggressively you know, increasing um, from cash, although I think there's some opportunity. It's more about starting to move uh, you know, in terms of maybe at the bias asset class, but also within sectors, trying to take on a little bit more of that exposure into these areas where, in effect, they've discounted uh, a great deal. And yet the intervention is likely to make the worst terrorist scenario uh, take it off the, the table. So uh, you could see a bounce back in some of these securities in the high yield and in um, the investment grade world uh, uh, you know, over the course of the next few weeks. I've got to ask, Andrew, are you happy with the calls that you made back in April? <laughs> um, I think that uh, you know, we, we provided some reasonable uh, guidance. Um, and you know, again, most probably is always that um, would it have been uh, nice to be more aggressive in some, some ways about uh, the views? Uh, you know, yes, with uh, the power of hindsight. But I think um, given the circumstances, uh, given that you know, we highlighted the uh, the value that we saw um, uh, that was developing in uh, and that had developed in credit that we saw the way that we've seen the market starting to um, uh, you know open up and really become much more vibrant. Then I think that was uh, that was fair. Um, you know, uh, I think as said, you know, you never have a, a perfect uh, call at uh, uh, at the time. If you do, you're lucky. So uh, I think, you know, just getting a reasonable framework and giving um, fairly hopefully consistent guidance. 
through that period um, you know has helped uh, some investors to uh, to make some of those margin or even um, you know meaningful decisions that help to, to capture some of that recovery and a reasonable framework charlotte um, you talked about trying to catch falling falling knives or is it bouncing knives um is is a is it reasonable at times like this just to sit tight to to sort of wait and um you know be sure of which way markets are going no um i don't think we operate in a world of certainty investors make decisions based on uh the facts and 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 a degree of uncertainty and if it's totally certain it tends to be in the price so you know i think sticking to the process sticking to the framework is very important, but waiting for certainty probably wouldn't do you any favours, and especially not at the speed of which um, you know, markets were moving. You, you, you just couldn't, couldn't really do that. Well, it didn't get any easier as we moved into June. In fact, it was looking a little bit more complicated because the disconnection grew between market exuberance on one hand and the dire state of real economies on the other, of some real economies. Um, Andrew, this is what you said then. been an extraordinary period where uh, you know the press has been full in recent days of uh, you know that animal spirits of uh, you know s- uh, very small retail traders uh, all of a sudden becoming quite big retail traders um, you know through the way in which they've benefited from this but I think it's important to then think about how the rally has formed we went from the high quality the, the resilient companies as we saw them through into a degree of sort of the cyclical and more reflation orientated as that um, belief started to, to grow and I think it was very interesting that you've seen the return of value as well. Um, that you know we've had you know is it a bounce rather than a change? But we're at very long term, um, you know, very uh, extreme levels. But it's shown signs of life at least. But now we've gone into almost the trash, you know, into the sort of zombie uh, conversation of everything being supported. And therefore, if it is, um, you know, buying up things that look remarkably, um, uh, you know cheap and marked down. And I think that's a slightly worrying signal in that we're getting very extended. So there were some worries. And in fact, you went on in that episode to wonder how markets might respond to the cost of rising debt levels, the possible price pressures that might emerge from all of that fiscal stimulus, the uh, the debt burden. Um, are, are you still concerned about that? Uh, so, so I am. I think it's a case of uh, you know how how do we um, see this play out uh, through through time? And uh, the reality is, as we sit here today, we don't know um, that. Uh, uh, I think the reflation theme has obviously grown substantially. I think uh, you know, Sharp highlighted that you know we now have a number of vaccines that are actually being um, uh, you know rolled out and being used, um, as well as more to to come. And so that confidence has grown. But to maintain this, the support and, and actually, you know, um, despite that, we're still seeing more challenges around the virus for many of the, the Western economies in the, uh, in the interim is it comes back to that maintenance of fiscal policy support and the central banks buying the debt of um, various uh, countries support that. So, uh, you know, is, is it uh, inflationary in the short term? That still feels unlikely. Does it, if it's sustained, um, lead to it later? Well, I think that is a heightened risk, but that plays as well that we've got this reflation theme and people are willing to live with the chances of a little bit of an uptick in, um, uh, in prices being healthy. If it really got into uh, full-blown inflation, then obviously then you start wondering how long the central banks can continue in their, their current very supportive, very um, uh, you know, monetary um, policy easing um, um, framework. But I think that's some time off. Does that worry you, Charlotte? 
this is really interesting because uh, the way that this feeds through to markets is is through rising bond yields. And at the moment, we have a world in which uh, those bond yields are, are being kept very low and we have sort of almost implicit yield curve control uh, from, from central banks. Um, but, you know, as we look forward, we, I think, you know, there's a pretty strong consensus now that, that the vaccine brings a new optimism and, and that will lead to a global uh, growth upswing. Where there's much less consensus is, is on how inflationary that is. And, and so actually having a view on the inflation outlook from here is, is, is really important to positioning. And I think, it, you know, it is, again, worth saying that, that, that the central banks have, and particularly the Fed, have really doubled down on their commitment to achieving this inflation. And this recovery so far looks pretty solid. So I think there are upsides risk, risks to inflation. Um, how soon they materialise is, is, is very important, but I, but I wouldn't rule it out as a, as a hot topic, as it were, for, for the back end of next year. And as a reminder to anybody listening to this, that if they want to hear you in a heated discussion with Steve Ellis, our CIO for Fixed Income, then that was in September after the summer break. Now, in fact, um, as we neared the end of the third quarter, there was this sense of stabilisation, as, uh, as you imply, and a feeling that the days of full national lockdowns were behind us. And in that particular podcast with Steve, we were discussing with you, Charlotte, about how to allocate for recovery. Certainly when we look at the two very big economies, so China and the US, there does seem to be a recovery underway. And the sort of second lockdowns that, that we've mentioned here have been really quite, or the risk of them has been quite focused on, on Europe. And, and as you say, I don't think we're probably going to go into the sort of really harsh lockdowns that we had before. Um, so in the round, uh, that sort of continued recovery, but admittedly not at the same pace, because, because clearly we're not coming from the same start point. Um, is is not a bad environment for for risk in general. Having said that, there are some po- pockets of the market that have run very very far, and and for instance, the the US tech sector really stands out. So so in terms of allocating that, where you allocate that risk, you you can look for areas that are more undervalued and and have lagged, and and that can be some of the more sort of cyclical cyclical sectors and and regions. So you're right, um, the second lockdowns weren't quite as uh, as strict as they had been in the first. Uh, Lots has happened since September, though. We've had the US elections uh, and finally a result, the encouraging news around vaccines. Um, Has any of that, uh, have they changed your allocation views? No, not really, actually. And and I think what's interesting about the the kind of uh, rotation story, if you like, that, that we were talking about back then is that it's been quite sector specific. So uh, if you look at uh, cyclicals and particularly China sensitive cyclicals, so for instance, the materials sector, um, uh, Australian dollar, the, these kind of um, China sensitives, they've done very well. But actually, the, the kind of deep value energy banks uh, are, are only just starting to, to really participate in that. And uh, and so I think, you know, there is still some way to go on these on these themes. Uh, and certainly while the, the backdrop continues to to look as it as it did then in terms of that broadening of the recovery uh, and with the added kicker of the the vaccine news. Um, in terms of the U.S. election, um, you know, at the beginning of the year, I think everyone would have said that that was going to be the most important event of the year. Got slightly swamped by by the pandemic, but it's still actually to, to play for. Arguably, you've got the Georgia uh, runoff election on the fifth of January. It's not impossible that we get a, a Democrat sweep, and I think. For now, uh, I'd say that if, if we do get that Democrat sweep, it's about 
faster reflation, you will expect to get a lot more fiscal. But actually, the, the kind of post-election world has been one of dropping volatility as that kind of election uncertainty has been moved out of the way. Well, not quite all of the uncertainty, though, uh, Andrew, because it, it's not yet settled in uh, the, the Georgia runoffs. Um, also, uh, as we record this, um, various countries, for example, in Europe, um, are going into a much harsher uh, lockdown. The Netherlands, Germany, uh, two examples. There is still quite a lot out there that we, we don't know as we move into uh, uh, 2021. Uh, there, there is, um, but I think that uh, again, thinking uh, you know how that plays out is that you know to, to George and to um, Charlotte's points that you know it could lead to a, a resurrection of the faster stimulus, larger stimulus sort of uh, profile in the US, and that um, you know maybe that brings back uh, uh, you know, Charlotte's point on bond yields um, a little bit more to the fore as we go into 21 as well. Uh, you know, so where I maybe have a slightly uh, uh, you know, different personal um, opinion today is that uh, you know market in terms of sentiment and the embracing of um, basically the reflation theme has has really gone quite a considerable uh, level and that you know the challenge is the degree to which now that optimism you know meets the realism um, and that realism is one of you know is there maybe a slightly deeper setback um, and that you know what does that mean around uh, monetary policy settings you know we're speaking as the Federal Reserve is meeting uh, later and expectations have been higher of how they will continue. And actually, it's quite interesting when the election came out, you know, in this sort of degree, you could argue some uncertainty. Actually, November was an incredible month for markets. Um, and it really was all about then. Actually, the Federal Reserve is going to have to do more. The dollar's gone down, you know, it's going down more that um, it's pushing money out to emerging markets to other parts of the uh, the world, as well as the, the US recovering. So I think a lot of these things have been braced to levels where as we look into to, uh, to 21, um, you know, now some of these can be, uh, you know, just as we've accepted everything can be constructive and we can look through it, maybe we've got to address some of the hurdles that actually are right in front of us. And I think that, uh, you know, I just sort of feel that the, the ride will be a little bumpier uh, as we look forward than, than the sort of straightforward degree of um, rallies we've seen, uh, you know, more recently. I, and I'd actually add to that. And, um, you know, I think it's so easy to talk about about the base case view but actually that base case view has become so so well embraced and loved and actually if we look at the risks that are out there you know we've got break evens and and real rates in the US at the widest apart they've been since the 2013 taper tantrum these things can can cause issues and and they might be short term issues but but they're ones that that you don't want to ignore uh, and of course the virus continues to rumble on and and just the fact that when we look at global equities, and really I'm talking about particularly the US here and, and the, the US large caps, which are a very significant portion of the global equity index, you know, that re-rating story has has happened. The the kind of burden of or the onus of uh, sort of proving the, the recovery story comes through the earnings leg here. So any sort of setback on earnings is is a problem for, for that part of the market. So given everything that we've discussed uh, over the course of this episode, what are the big lessons that you take away as investors from 2020 and how those lessons should be applied to, um, to portfolios? Charlotte, first of all. So I think, I guess, three sort of um, reminders, really. Um, the first one is that we talk a lot about um, structural trends, if you like, and, and these are things that play out very slowly. And actually, this year, we've had some structural things that have played out very quickly. And, and to be more specific, I think 
you know, we were talking about the framework review in terms of the uh, inflation objective from central banks before COVID. And here we are with, with a new framework and an awful lot of policy to support that. Uh, and likewise, the kind of ESG and the green agenda, uh, which was, was already in train and has, has really just been, been sort of fast forwarded because it's an area that policymakers can, can agree to, to spend money on. Um, the second one, I think, probably, again, just a reminder of how important technicals are. Final point is actually just a portfolio construction point, which is, you know, we, we talk about risk and there are lots of different ways of thinking about risk or, or measuring risk. And volatility is only one of those. Uh, but it's one that gets spoken about an awful lot. And actually, had you constructed your portfolio just off the basis of, of what volatility was was sort of almost suggesting in terms of trade sizing, uh, that that wouldn't necessarily have been a, a great a great outcome for you. So volatility was a was a poor metric of risk um, if you were look, looking at sort of three five year volatility to to construct your portfolio. And Andrew, I could see you nodding through that. Yeah, I think that um, that last one is an important one because obviously there's an implied volatility, but the reality is that what is your environment ahead? And actually, you know, sometimes we're put off um, taking risk or we take too much risk because of where that implied profile is. And actually, if the environment's changing, i.e. that we are looking through, you know, the whole concept of we used before the healing process. And just as we're saying now, that actually there's complacency coming back in. Those forward-looking profiles, actually, you've got to adjust them. And that's the bit where I think you know, there's a degree of skill as well as you know, quantitative uh, measurement that comes into to play. And I think we do need to, to remember that. And um, I think also the part on the, the technicals is important that um, sometimes it's to be able to understand you know, when things do get um, to levels of uh, uh, you know, extremes and the nature of, of those you know, how sustainable are they? And what, what does that imply? And also sometimes technicals will be a lead to the fundamentals. They will catch up um, as much as, uh, uh, you know, believing in where, where trends are. But I suppose the part as well I'm, I'm taking away from, from this year that, uh, you know, it is important. Uh, you know, we spoke about this back in early March, um, is that ability to manage your own emotional oscillations you know, to be balanced throughout. So not getting too excited at the extremes on the upside and also on the downside, you know, keeping framework and understanding where you are in that basis is so important to be able to uh, uh, navigate sensibly. And I think that this year has just proven that even more. And that, you know, uh, Charlotte highlighted that timescales can change, but if you keep to understanding and have that robustness of approach, then it can uh, you know, give you signals that you then can interpret and use um, uh, you know, valuably um, you know, within the marketplace. And it doesn't mean you capture all the highs and all the lows, but it certainly means that you um, hopefully are not caught the wrong side of them, but also that you can participate in how they evolve through time. Useful advice. Thank you. Right. We're almost at the end now. Um, but of course, it's time for the hilarious Rich Pickings parlour game, uh, our last hot cakes and hot potatoes of the year. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Um, Charlotte. I'm going to say my hot cake is actually broad commodities. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that uh, I think the, the the backdrop of recovery is good for for industrial commodities. I think this low real rate environment is is good for the the precious metals complex. And when I look at oil markets, I think there's some catch up to be to be had there to the rest of the commodity complex. Finally, it's one of the the 
few parts of the market that's not being um, intervened with from central banks. So, so I think commodities. My hot potato would be cash or or negative yielding uh, European bonds, and the reason for that is just that I think inflation could surprise more positively. And I'm not just talking about kind of inflation base effects here. I'm talking about some more underlying inflation dynamics that that start to come through. Uh, and in that world, cash gives you a, a negative real return uh, and negative yielding bonds don't, don't help you out much either. Absolutely. And Andrew, what about you? Your hot cakes, first of all. Hot cakes that, um, uh, you know, it's a difficult one because I'm probably uh, aligned to what uh, Charlotte said. I've, I've been biased towards thinking that, um, uh, you know, if we have this reflation trade comes through with a, with a um, uh, you know, more momentum as we uh, see 21 develop, um, as we see the real economy coming through, as I think people look out and um, restock and uh, have to build on what has been a sort of strange inventory environment uh, as well, um, as we look around world and supply chains, then uh, you, you will see um, recovery across uh, uh, you know, many of the, the sort of materials required for that. I think, you know, I sort of struggle to look away from uh, uh, from there. And it may be that, you know, looking into some of the stocks as well that would benefit from uh, having sensitivity to, uh, to that uh, as we go through uh, 21. I suppose that, um, you know, uh, slightly different to, to Charlotte's on the potatoes, so that, um, but with the same theme, is that duration risk. I do wonder whether that comes back to actually hurt um, the ability for that uh, you know, strong leadership and concentration leadership that we've seen that's been changing actually could go into somewhat reverse. So I, I sort of worry that earnings are a, a bit of an issue um, uh, in living up to what's expected. But also if we see that yields start to rise and there's a you know, long duration is put at risk, and I think you could see that some of the, uh, uh, the sort of tech leaders that are the most sensitive um, uh, you know, with a combination of other factors that are building up out there um, uh, for the new year that um, you know, could come to play. So a bit of a, um, a strong cause we enter 21, but I'd wrap it all up in that if I look into 21 broadly is that this, I really believe this to be the year when the US outperformance finally starts to, um, to give ground to outperformance elsewhere. One to watch. Tune in next year to find out. Um, we, we, I think we'll do this again um, and review these, uh, these calls. So Andrew, <laughs> let's book, book your diary in for a year from now. Um, that brings us to the end of this podcast and to the end of this extraordinary year and a great year for the podcast, which has won awards in Europe and America. So thank you to all of you who've listened to us and thank you to my guests, of course, Andrew McCaffrey and Charlotte Harrington and those throughout the year. You can access all of our investment thinking of the year, including our 2021 outlook at fidelityinternational.com. The producer today was Seb Morton-Clark with technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.